If you have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to the book of Acts. We're at Acts 15, 13 to 35, we're going to look at today for a sermon I've entitled, The First Church Council. This is part three. Would you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. Now, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself by taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. And we'll pick up the rest in the text. You know, with emails and texting, personal letter writing has almost completely disappeared as a form of communication. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that you sat down and wrote a letter? But in times past, almost everybody wrote letters since it was about the only form of long-distance communication there was. (laughs) Now, most letters were written, read, and forgotten, but some have actually entered into the history books. I came across an article from the Mental Floss website entitled Five Letters That Changed History. The first one that they mentioned was by an 11-year-old girl named Grace Bedell. Now, she wrote a letter to Abraham Lincoln, who was at the time the Republican candidate for president. And she offered him some campaign advice, telling him that because his face was so thin, she thought that he should grow a beard because all ladies like whiskers. Well, Lincoln wrote back to the girl stating that he thought that growing a beard at this point would be a bit pretentious since he had never worn one before. But he went with her suggestion and grew a beard. And so on the way to his inauguration ceremony after he won, he made a stop at the girl's hometown to tell her that he had taken her advice to heart. Now, the second letter mentioned is one that's of a little more serious matter. Albert Einstein wrote a a letter to President Roosevelt warning him of the research that was being done by fellow scientists with uranium, which he said could possibly be used to set off a nuclear reaction. Einstein was worried that if the Germans were to develop this technology, they might be able to produce a weapon of incredibly destructive power. So Roosevelt responded by starting the Manhattan Project, which led to the Americans building the first atomic bomb. Now, George Washington... He needed spies to report back what the British military plans were. He first chose Nathan Hale, but he was caught and hung two weeks later. Washington then wrote a letter to Nathaniel Sackett, urging him to set up a spy network behind enemy lines. And one of his men that he enlisted was Benjamin Talmadge, who proved himself to be very adept at his craft. The colonists often knew what the British commanders were going to do, even before their own men did. How about this letter? In 1920, American women first gained the right to vote. According to the article I read, on August 18th of that year, Tennessee House Representative Harry Thomas Burns cast the deciding vote on whether his state would ratify the 19th Amendment. 
Tennessee became the 36th state to do so, cementing the three-fourths of the states needed in order to grant women the right to vote. Now, his vote in favor was actually unexpected since earlier he'd spoke out against the amendment. Well, what changed his mind? It was a letter from his mother who urged him to vote in favor of it. Don't forget to be a good boy, she admonished. Burns said later that a mother's advice is always the safest for a boy to follow. The last letter they mentioned, though, was written from a Birmingham jail from Alabama. It was written by Martin Luther King, who addressed the local clergymen who had criticized the protests that King had organized in that city. They called the protests unwise and untimely, and King, in his letter, not only defended his practices, but also indicted the clergy for their standing on the sideline during a time in the nation's history when a great moral issue was being faced. Now, certainly, those letters were significant. And I'm sure that a number more could be added if we expanded the list. But I wonder, even if you were to list the top 100 most important letters from history, would the letter that was sent by the apostles and the elders from the church council in Jerusalem make it onto the list? I doubt it. Well, the letter we look at in our passage this morning was short and sweet. I mean, it could have been written on a postcard. But the decision it recorded changed the course of history by expanding the church beyond the bounds of Judaism so that Christianity became a worldwide religion, one that has had a greater impact on history than any other. So today what we want to do is consider the decision that this first council made, the letter that they sent, and the results that came from it, and why this letter deserves to be in the top five. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Uh, this is not an issue that is so much in the forefront of the church today. Nobody's demanding that people be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law. But the issue of how a person saved is at the center. And so we pray that you'd help us to see these things so that we can apply them to our heart and be pleasing to you. For we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, this decision of the council came at a critical time in the history of Christianity. I mean, Gentiles were starting to come into the church in large numbers, and this was very unsettling for a number of Jesus' Jewish followers because they had to rethink their whole attitude towards these people that they had always considered outsiders and looked on with suspicion. But you know, it was more than just a cultural clash that was taking place. There was a theological crisis that was being experienced. I mean, over the centuries, there were always a few Gentiles that had joined in to become part of the covenant community. But in order to do so, they had to convert and become Jews themselves. Well, the men had to be circumcised, and both the men and the women had to agree to live by the Mosaic Law. But with the inauguration of the New Covenant, through Christ's death and resurrection, the provisions of the Old Covenant were being set aside. So now, the keeping of the Mosaic Law was no longer necessary. I mean, think about it. When a country adopts a new constitution, the old one no longer applies. Now, some of the Jewish followers of Jesus balked at this understanding, insisting that unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, the term that was applied to those who held this view was Judaizers. In essence, what they were saying was that a Jew or a Gentile would have to become a Jew in order to be saved. Now, I would guess that many in the church would have been willing to give in on this issue just to keep the peace. But Paul understood what was at stake. It was the gospel and the question, how is a person saved? I mean, is it by faith alone? In Christ alone, trusting in his death is the payment for our sins? Or are we saved by faith, plus Christ, uh, faith in Christ plus circumcision and keeping the Mosaic Law? I mean, does salvation come to God or from God as a gift of grace? Or do we somehow earn and merit it? 
Now, now this is not a matter of theological hair splitting. What's at stake is heaven and hell. Well, it was decided that Paul and Barnabas should go up to Jerusalem to put this question before the apostles. And we are told that after a long debate, and this is our first point, a decision was rendered. And this is in verses 13 to 16. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here. The decision came after much debate. You know, whenever you hear a politician say, well, the debate is over, the time is settled, or the time for it to act has come. You can be sure of this, the debate isn't really over and the issue isn't settled. I mean, what they really mean is we're not going to listen anymore to debate and we've already decided on this matter. I mean, think about it. What were we told about the COVID vaccines? Oh, they were safe and effective. If you get a vaccine, you won't get COVID and you won't spread it to others. Wear your mask and stay six feet apart. Well, three years later, we know that the vaccines are not safe. Millions have been injured by it. Thousands have died from taking it. I know some personally. Studies have shown that masks don't reduce the spread. Anthony Fauci recently admitted that the six, six feet um, distance was just a number that they pulled out of the air. They had no science to back it. And now the state of Texas is suing Pfizer for misleading and deceptive practices by making unsupported claims for their product. Follow the science, trust the experts. I got a better idea. Follow the money and be suspicious of the so-called experts. Debate shouldn't be shut down. They should be encouraged. That's how you get to the truth. Well, what was the truth in this debate? Were the Judaizers right when they insisted that Gentile converts needed to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved? Now, just as in court cases, both sides make their case and you bring forward witnesses to testify, well, here we have a number of witnesses that come forward explaining why they didn't believe that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. First one to come forward was Peter. Now, he added to the discussion by retelling the experience he had when he had a vision and he was directed by God in the vision to eat some of these unclean animals that he saw before him. And of course, he refused, saying, oh, no, Lord, I've never, I've never defiled myself in that way. But God said, what God declares clean, no longer consider unholy. Around that time, um, some people came from Cornelius' house telling how their master had received a vision from God, telling him to go to find Peter and bring him back so that he could preach the gospel to him. Well, Peter did, and the family was gathered along with the servants, and as they were there, he began to preach, and when he preached, the Holy Spirit came upon those people there, just as they had the Jews at Pentecost. Now, if God had given them the Spirit when they believed, then they were certainly saved. And yet, they were still uncircumcised Gentiles at the time. So God was making it clear that Gentiles simply had to believe in Christ so as to be saved. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And folks, that's not only true for Gentiles. What they needed to understand was that was true for Jews. And that's why Peter said in verse 11 of this chapter, but we believe that we, meaning we Jews, are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way that they, Gentiles, are also. Now the next two to speak were Paul and Barnabas. They recounted how God had worked miracles through them while they were preaching to the Gentiles. Now obviously, if God was backing up their message of salvation by grace, or uh, salvation by grace through faith, then they indeed were preaching the right gospel. Now finally, James gets up. And after taking note of Peter's testimony, he argues and deduces that the, at the present time, God is indeed calling out people for himself from among the Gentiles. And then he quotes a prophecy from the book of Amos, which says this, and we see this in verse 16 to 17. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now, we looked at this last week in particular and really fleshed this out and what it meant in the context of Amos. But right now, I mean, I think what needs to be re, uh, iterated is that after Christ returns to earth, he's going to take his seat on David's throne. And it's at this time that the nations of the world will be converted. Now, many Christians don't realize that the Bible actually teaches that the whole world will be converted after Jesus returns, not before. Now, I showed this when I preached through the Revelation series, and I got to Revelation 20, I preached a sermon entitled The Conversion of the Nations. You can find that on sermonaudio.com on our website, and I really encourage you to listen to that if this sounds foreign to you. But what I think James understood here was that if God's end goal was to call in Gentile nations as Gentiles and bringing Gentiles into the church now without first making them become Jews falls right in line with God's ultimate purpose. So James is going to render his verdict on this issue. And we're going to see it in verses 19 to 21. But I think it's important that we uh, stop for a moment and notice how the issue was settled by the Jerusalem Council. You know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, literally from the chair, in his official capacity as the head of the church, what he pronounces is infallible, binding upon all Catholics to believe. So in 1950, Pope Pius XII proclaimed, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. In other words, Mary never died. She just went straight to heaven. Now, the Pope said this was a divinely revealed dogma, that is teaching, but it certainly wasn't revealed in Scripture, which teaches no such thing. But all Catholics are required to believe and affirm this teaching. The Church argues that Peter was the first Pope. He was the rock on which the Church was built, and that all the other Popes have come as an unbroken line since then. But notice here that it's not Peter, but James who announces the decision of the council. In the Greek Orthodox Church, they don't believe the Pope is supreme over all the churches, certainly not over the Orthodox churches. Instead, they look to the pronouncement of church councils as authoritative from God. Several months ago, I got into a discussion, a three-hour discussion with a Orthodox bishop about this very issue. All these councils were gatherings of bishops and priests who are there to debate and hammer out their understanding of the things like the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Jesus, the nature of the Trinity, and so forth. And honestly, the councils did much good in solidifying and clarifying the understanding of the Christian faith. But are councils themselves infallible? The Council of Hieria of 754 condemned the use of icons in worship. But 33 years later, the Council of, uh, Second Council of Nicaea in 787 restored the veneration of idol, uh, idols. I got that right, too. Icons. I mean, which was right? Which council? They can't both be right. When Martin Luther stood before the Catholic prelates in the Diet of Worms, he was asked if he was willing to recant his teachings and come back under the authority of the Pope and the Church. He responded by declaring this, Unless I'm convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture... And by manifest reasoning, 
Since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the Pope or council, since it's plain that they've often erred and often contradicted themselves, I stand convinced by the scripture to which I have appealed, and my conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Now there's some debate over whether Luther uttered those last, that last sentence in the meeting. But there's no doubt that he stood alone on the word of God, sola scriptura. For the followers of Christ, the Bible gets the final word because the Bible is God's word and God gets the final word. But let me ask you a question. What's the final authority for your life in making decisions? Is it your church? Some particular religious leader? Is it whatever the cultural consensus is of our day? Is it what the experts say? Is it your own opinion? Is it Oprah? I mean, do you just do whatever seems right in your own eyes? Or are you truly under the authority of Scripture? I want you to notice that James first quotes from the Scripture, which for him settles the matter, but then he renders his decision because of what Scripture says. Look what it says in verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what's strangled, and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has had in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So no, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. But there are some things that they should do to avoid uh, the sensitivities being hurt of Jews who they're trying to reach. That brings us to our second point, though, the letter that was sent. This is verses 22 to 29. Now, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe it came from you. I'm going to write words oh so sweet. They're going to knock me off my feet. Kisses on the bottom. I'll be glad that I've got them. Those are words of a song, but they're kind of pathetic if you think about it that you have to write yourself a love letter. Well, having come to their decision, we read, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church so they came to an agreement to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. And they sent them this letter. So Paul and Barnabas were going back to Antioch with the official letter, the pronouncements from the Jerusalem council. And just so there was no question as to the authenticity, they were joined by a couple of well-respected believers from the Jerusalem church, Barsabbas and Silas. Was the letter long and drawn out? No, it was actually short and sweet and to the point. We have the contents of the letter found in verses 23 to 29. Look again what it says. It says, The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria, Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Now, since we've heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having come of one mind, to settle or to select men to send to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, if you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Now, there are several things I think we need to note here. First of all, the apostles 
and the elders of the council distanced themselves from the Judaizers and the teaching they were propagating. I mean, these teachers may have come from their hometown, but they said they're in no way speaking for us. You know, when a well-known pastor is asked to speak at a conference, he knows that he's going to be speaking with others who've been invited as well. But what happens when you find out that someone else who's been invited to speak holds a position that you cannot countenance? Alistair Begg is a well-known conservative pastor who has been on the radio for many years. He's been a pastor of his church for 40. I've listened to him for many of those years. Well, recently he found himself in the center of a controversy of his own making. He mentioned in an interview that he'd been contacted by a grandmother who said that her granddaughter was going to get married to a transgender person. She had been invited to the wedding and she wanted to know what she should do. Now, Beg started by saying that some people might not like his answer, but he thinks that she should attend the wedding and bring a gift to the ceremony. I mean, as long as the granddaughter knew where her grandmother stood on this issue and that she could not approve of the marriage, she should go. Otherwise, the grandmother would be confirming in the minds of this couple that Christians are judgmental. Now, folks, listen carefully. This isn't advice given by a left-wing liberal mainline pastor. It's coming from someone who's well-respected in Reformed circles. But when you go to a wedding, aren't you showing your support for the marriage? And when you give a gift, isn't that a token of the celebration? I mean, how can we support and celebrate what God calls sin? I mean, what if you had a young neighbor girl who asked you to bring her to the abortion clinic? Would you agree to drive her there just as long as she knew that you were pro-life? Should an ancient Israelite who was attending a, a, a ceremony at a temple of Moloch for somebody who was going to sacrifice their child, would that have been okay? I mean, when the owners of American Family Radio Network heard this, they tried to contact Pastor Begg to make sure they had heard him rightly and to give him a chance to reevaluate and recant what he said. Well, spokesman for Begg told him that they had heard him correctly and he wasn't going to take it back. They dropped his program, Truth for Life, from 180 of their radio stations. Now, I heard the sermon that Pastor Begg preached uh, later on after this kerfuffle showed up. He did not back down. He said he was not going to repent and he still holds his position. You know, we need not only to let people know what we stand for, but what we stand against. And if others will not stand with us in the truth, we can't stand with them on the same platform. The next thing I want you to notice, though, is that they recognize the damage that had been done. I mean, these Judaizers, they said, were disturbing and unsettling these people. Jesus warned against causing his followers to stumble. He said this in Luke 17, 1-2. He said, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the depths of the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's a big deal if you cause other people to stumble, either through your life that you live, the teaching that you give, or the example that you set. The other thing I want you to notice, though, is that they affirm their support for Paul and Barnabas. It says, for our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who had risked their life for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these two were at the center of the controversy. And the church council didn't want to leave any doubt in the minds of any that they were behind these men and the message that they preached. Next thing I want you to notice, though, is that they set down guidelines for the Gentiles. They said that they should abstain from things sacrificed from idols, or to idols, and from blood, 
and from being strangled and from fornication. Now, what I find interesting is that these four prohibitions that James gives all are found in the book of Leviticus, the book that contains many of the ceremonial laws of the Mosaic Covenant. But are, are these just ceremonial prohibitions, equivalent to not eating pork or shellfish, or not making clothes of two different materials like wool and linen? Now, three of them were considered abhorrent to the Jews, and you might even think of them as being ceremonial. But what about fornication? Are the Gentiles supposed to uh, stay away from sexual sin only because it's offensive to Jews? No, sexual sin is offensive to God as well. Now, all four of these things that James said they should abstain from were common practices among the Gentiles. I mean, idolatry was rampant among the pagans and blood rituals were common in their religion. Sex outside of marriage was considered normal and just shrugged at. And sexual perversion was even encouraged by their religions. So I think what James is saying here is this. For you Gentile converts to Christ, I mean, you don't have to live as Jews, but neither can you continue to live like pagan Gentiles. I mean, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to live a life of moral purity. And of course, if they did, they'd be ridiculed and despised by their non-Christian neighbors, family members, friends. Sometimes they'd even face persecution. Peter, writing to the Gentile Christians in his day, said this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. In other words, make up your mind you're going to have to suffer. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. 1 Peter 4, 1-5. And you know, folks, it's the same for us today. The whole world may be on the highway to hell, singing merrily along the way, but the Christian is on the narrow road that leads to heaven. Or to change the analogy, as Christians, we have to swim against the current, the moral current, while the non-Christians go with a flow of the river of sin. But there's a steep waterfall at the end, and by the time they see it, it may be too late for them to turn back. Of course, as our culture rots and our society continues its moral freefall, it's getting harder and harder to live a life of purity. But it's a life that we must live. Because, you know, it says in Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. As Christ's followers, both Jews and Gentiles alike, we're called to live a life of holiness. That brings us to our third point, though. The letter was received. This is verses 30 to 35. Now, there's going to be a lot more bumps and bruises along the road to unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church, but this letter was a good start down that path. I mean, the letter was sent in love and it was received with joy. Look what it says in verse 30. So when they had sent him away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. You know, I recently finished reading a biography of Richard Nixon, President Richard Nixon. You know, despite being a politician, Nixon was never really comfortable around groups of people. He was rather shy. And he had a soft spot for people who had suffered rejection much like he thought he had. And so in 1972, when Nixon ran against George McGovern, McGovern picked Thomas Eagleton of Missouri to be his running mate. But two weeks later, 
it came out that Eagleton had been hospitalized a couple times for depression and that he had received electroshock therapy, which was uh, bad press. And so McGovern dropped him from the ticket. Now, President Nixon wrote a personal letter to Eagleton's 13-year-old son telling him that he thought his dad was actually a fine man and that he shouldn't take the press clippings about his dad too much to heart. Eagleton's son showed the letter to his father, who then said, you know, it's going to be a lot harder for me to hate President Nixon from now on. Well, this letter brought great encouragement and joy to the Gentile Christians at Antioch. I mean, the faith that they had in Christ was now given a stamp of approval by the Jerusalem Council, just the kind of affirmation they needed. But you know, the ones bringing the letter back not only wanted to affirm the Gentiles' believers in the faith, but also confirm them more deeply in it. Which is why we read, starting in verse 33 to 35, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Barnabas and Paul stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. So encouraging and strengthening the faith of believers by teaching and preaching God's word to them. That's what we seek to do in our church as well. That's what I seek to do on our website sermons. We want you to be filled with joy as you see God working in your lives, in the lives of those around you. Now, of course, this letter meant a lot to the Gentile believers in the city of Antioch, but it was also of great significance for the well-being and growth of the church as a whole. Now, I think there were four things that were accomplished as a result of this letter. Here's the first one. The gospel of grace was firmly established in the church. See, that was what was at stake. How was a person saved? And the gospel of grace was affirmed and reconfirmed. So everyone and anyone who's saved is saved in the same way, by faith in Christ's death and resurrection on their behalf. Salvation is not a work that you achieve. It's a gift that you receive. Second thing that was accomplished, though, was the unity of the church was preserved. I mean, there wasn't going to be two churches, one for Jews and one for Gentiles, one with a salvation by works and another salvation by faith. There would be one church for Jews and Gentiles, both worshiping one God through Jesus Christ. Now, the third thing that was accomplished was that ethnic identities were affirmed. Jews could remain Jews and Gentiles could remain Gentiles. Because when it comes to salvation, folks, all who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. The last thing that needs to be said, though, is that the church, as a result of this letter, was able to expand beyond the confines of Judaism so as to become a worldwide religion. I mean, think about it. If Christianity had remained in the old wineskin of Judaism with circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law, it would have ended up a small sect within the Jewish religion rather than the world-changing religion that it became. You see, that letter from Jerusalem didn't begin our religion, but it certainly helped it along the way. And I think that's what it should be for us as well. Through the lives that we live, the message that we proclaim, through the example we give, the money we donate, and the prayers we offer up. We want this faith to continue to spread in our families, in our community, in our country, and in our world.
Be part of that process. Be part of that witness. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. As I said earlier, this is not a big issue in the church. The issue of whether people have to be circumcised to be Christians was long settled, and it has not come up since then. But the issue of how a person saved, whether it's faith in Christ alone or faith plus baptism, faith plus church membership, faith plus taking the sacraments, faith plus my good works, that is a perennial issue, one that we need to get clear in our mind. So help us first and foremost to trust in your son's death as the payment for our sins, but also to proclaim that message to others so that they could have eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it does transform lives. And we pray that it would do just that for us even now. For we ask in Christ's name and to his praise. Amen.